Oh, behave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby! Yeah! Once again, your wonky yet affable host Ryan Rodriguez here for the Bonus Chronicles. Little morsels of informative nonsense exclusively for you lovely subscribers here on Patreon. Recently on the podcast proper, we discussed the initial series finale of MST3K, Mario Bava's Danger Diabolic, and I cut a pretty comprehensive detour for time, one that has its origins in the candy-colored spinning opening credits. Uh-oh, it's getting groovy. Oh, God, is someone going to tell us that something is shagadelic, man? Oh, no, Let's go back to the 90s and cover the once-refreshing, increasingly tiresome, and unfortunately quotable Austin Powers franchise. not to be confused with Haddonfield's most stylish serial killer, has probably had more of an effect on the vernacular of contemporary pop culture than any other living comedian, and you can choose to look at that as either a good thing or a terrifying thing. When Wayne's World hit theaters in 1992 after originating as a recurring sketch on Saturday Night Live, its catchphrases were omnipresent. We all laughed and quoted and said, Where has this movie been all our lives? We could reference this for eternity! completely unaware that we had just invoked a monkey's paw scenario. Not! No way! Way! Swing! Swing! Pretty on, Garth. Pretty on, Wayne. Ass sphincter says what? Not! No way! Way! Swing! Swing! By the time Wayne's World 2 arrived in 1993, the bloom was off the rose. Not just because it was a pale and lazy rehash of a genuinely good movie, but because peak saturation had been achieved. The words and phrases that could not be unheard or escaped became shorthand for someone trying to be hip and failing, and for culture past its expiration date. Once your mom starts saying schwing, it's done. That's not to say that they weren't ever actually amusing, it's just that we've been living with this stuff for almost two decades, and it's almost hard to imagine an era when it wasn't tired. Little did we know that Wayne's World was just an opening salvo. The calm before the storm. You see, Mike Myers was not just an architect of pop culture, he was a student of it, and one of his great gifts was timing. But before we get to that, some context. The 90s were a time of inexplicable nostalgia for the 1960s, as the major studios began cannibalizing the intellectual property of the past to fill their coffers in the present. You couldn't swing a cat without hitting a reboot of a now-irrelevant sitcom in your local movie theater. The Brady Bunch lived again in movies that were arguably very funny. The Beverly Hillbillies were up for grabs in the opposite scenario, etc., etc. In 1995, MGM hit the reboot button on James Bond, a franchise that had died at least two previous ignoble deaths and was passé and problematic in a modern idiom, but instead of the gamble blowing up in their faces, their new effort, Goldeneye, was huge. It was the start of what we now have today. A validation of the concept that everything old is new again, where the highest grossing movies of the year either have a trademark symbol or a number in the title. Fortunately for Myers, 
He was raised on the stuff that Hollywood was convinced people were crying out for. Growing up, his father introduced him to the finer things, like Bond, The Goon Show, Monty Python, BBC Spy Capers, the sexy swinging London days. While he could certainly be accused of beating a dead horse, or introducing dead horses for ordinary people to beat in his stead, it's undeniable that he knew when people were ready for something, even if they weren't aware of it. In 1997, New Line Cinema released a film written by Myers that combined all the influences his father gifted him into a sleeper hit spy spoof called Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. It's not unusual Allow myself to introduce myself. Danger Powers, personal effects. Actually, my name is Austin Powers. Danger's my middle name. I'm gonna need you to sign these release forms. Okay, name. Sex? Yes, please. In his time, he was the coolest secret agent alive. Unfortunately... It's freedom, baby, yeah! This is not his time. He's a swinger in a square world. A lot's changed since 1967. Bring on the sexy stews, man! Yeah! We're called flight attendants now. And he's a stranger in a strange land. This is my mother, Mrs. Exposition. Lovely. Austin! What have you done? That's not your mother, it's a man, baby! No. Why won't this Please. wig come off? Mike Myers. Yeah, baby, yeah! Elizabeth Hurley. Don't forget me. Oh, thanks. Austin Powers, international man of mystery. Always wanting to have fun, Austin. That's you in a nutshell. No, this is me in a nutshell. Help, I'm in a nutshell. <laughs> Assuming you're one of five people who's never seen it, the movie starts in 1967 and follows a flamboyantly and garishly stylish British secret agent named Austin Powers, whose nemesis, the Blofeld composite Dr. Evil, freezes himself in a rocket ship with the intent of thawing out decades in the future to rule the world and enact sinister doomsday plans. Austin also decides to freeze himself to be thawed out by his intelligence superior, Basil Exposition, the never-better Michael York, when and if Dr. Evil resurfaces. That when and if turns out to be 1997, and a newly unfrozen Austin must adjust to the present day and infiltrate Dr. Evil's new secret lair with the aid of Vanessa Kensington, played by Elizabeth Hurley, the daughter of his Emma Peel-esque Girl Friday from his glory days. When this movie hit the scene, it was really not a big deal. Critics were softly positive, but fairly dismissive of its originality and prophetic qualities. After all, James Bond parodies were not a new phenomenon. Even if the Derek Flint series didn't lightly tease Ian Fleming's signature spy in his own decade of dominance, there had been no shortage of observations regarding the more dated qualities of Bond in the three decades that followed Dr. No. Like Derek Flint, whose signature telephone sound effect is used in Meyer's movie, Austin Powers is an affectionate spoof. He uses the concept of cryogenic freezing as a metaphor for transporting a relic of a bygone age, like Bond, to the present, unchanged only to face a new reality. But here's the thing. In the movie, everybody loves Austin. Yes, his politics are dated and his sexually forward nature is lascivious, but his antics always manage to endear. It's not long before Elizabeth Hurley's character is on board with him completely. And as a side note on Miss Hurley... I love you. Always have. On paper, Austin might read as shots fired against MGM's only viable franchise, but on screen it's charming. It's all in good fun. 
Myers doesn't pick apart something that he hates, he's merely giving a gentle noogie to something that he loves. And in watching Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, no matter how many times I come back to it, I'm always impressed by how genuinely fun and clever it is, especially considering the future. I love it so much that I name my cat Mrs. Bigglesworth, Bigsy for short. Directed by Jay Roach, it's crude and visibly cheap at times, but that's part of the appeal, in an almost Zucker Abrams Zucker-esque fashion. The plot is merely an excuse for a series of extended set pieces, subgenre parodies, and improvisatory riffs, but whoever said a comedy had to be structurally sound to be memorable or, more importantly, funny? There are small moments here that don't feel designed to capitalize on a zeitgeist, just character bits that are solid. Bits that I still quote to this day. Well, it appears to be in the shape of a big boy. Good God. He's back. Well, in many ways, the big boy never left, sir. He's always offered the same high-quality meals at competitive prices. Shut up. Also kind of surprising is the tightness to Meyer's performances as both Austin and Dr. Evil, something that would be discarded altogether with future movies as he became as enamored with his own characters as the audiences were. Dr. Evil going forward became just a look and a voice, but in the first film, Myers consistently portrays the villain as stiff, his movements rigid, his reaction times delayed. He is, after all, unfrozen. There is, dare I say it, an inhabited subtlety to Dr. Evil here that differentiates him from the hero, where in further movies his repository of characters were only separated by voice and makeup. Did I say further movies? Let's get into that. Grossing $53 million at the domestic box office, Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery was unquestionably a success, especially for distributor New Line, grossing three times its small budget, but it didn't set any records. People were starting to pick up on its lingo, though. I think you're shagadelic, baby. You're switched on. You're smashing. When Mike Myers hosted that year's MTV Movie Awards ceremony in June, a month after the theatrical release, he appeared as Austin toward the end of the show, performing a song written for the film, and the reaction was a resounding, hmm. The seismic shift was home video, DVD specifically, which grew the film's profile like a weed. Suddenly there were Austin Powers impersonators. Sports Center anchors were talking about shagging each other and whatnot. New Line, who proved with their Nightmare on Elm Street series that they were never averse to quickly commissioning product to capitalize on a trend, ordered a sequel which was already written and shooting a mere year after the first film's release. And although the summer of 1999 was all but destined to be the season of The Phantom Menace, Austin Powers was ready to surprise box office analysts and fans the world over with The Spy Who Shagged Me. Austin Powers Crazy Baby, yeah! Beautiful Felicity Shagwell. How does that feel, baby? Mm, lower. How does that feel, baby? In a thrilling adventure of intrigue, treachery, and love. But Dr. Evil is back, and more evil than ever. I'm gonna cry, I'm gonna cry, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go back to the 60s and steal Austin Powers' no Jerry. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to travel through time. I bid you adieu. Mike Myers. <laughs> Mike Myers. What are you, some kind of freak? You mother <laughs> Heather Graham. Move over, Rover. This chick is taking over. And Mike Myers. The face, the face! 
in the biggest Austin Powers adventure yet. Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. Great plan, Einstein. All right, zip it. You know, you can't... Zip. It's simple. It is life in the world. Meet our hero at all. Subtitle, zip it. The Spy Who Shagged Me is everything the first movie was, only more and with less feeling. And I mean that literally. If you laughed at an observation or a joke or a gag or a routine the first time, you'll get it again here, slightly different and slightly worse. Myers and his co-writer Michael McCullers could have broadened their horizons and taken their sequel as an opportunity to blaze new trails or push boundaries or take one single risk, but instead they gave us leftovers. That's not inherently bad, as leftovers can be tasty if originally cooked well, but they can also be ruined if reheated with the wrong setting. I understand my metaphors are rather tortured. Austin Powers 1 is, let's say, a three-layer beef lasagna. Not too much cheese. Number 2 is that movie after being in the fridge for a few days, then reheated on the lowest setting. Admittedly, this works better if we all have the same microwave. You know what? Fuck this metaphor. It goes far beyond callbacks and into the realm of copy and paste, and it extends not only to the quote-unquote variety of humor offered, but the entire production. A crucial example of more yet less was the decision to replace Elizabeth Hurley as the female lead. It has precedence in the lore of Bond, where no matter how familiar 007 got with his leading lady, she was nowhere to be found in the next movie. But if you're going to swap out Ms. Hurley, at least trade up. Instead, the female lead was given to Heather Graham, a lovely actress, physically, who unfortunately has the range of a Malibu Stacy doll. I really hate making these kinds of statements because they're usually rooted in casual sexism, but that's not my intention whatsoever. There's just a flat, plastic quality to her and her Felicity Shagwell character that is most distracting and something that is intended to be funny. Felicity would never sleep with you, right? I did what I had to do. I'm a secret agent. Don't ask me! I'm just a girl! I also don't know that this is entirely her fault, because the character really only exists to titter at Mike Myers' supposedly hilarious jokes and look stunning, which brings me to my key point. What truly undoes these proceedings is an air of satisfaction. Myers, who made Dr. Evil and Austin Powers two distinct performances that just so happen to be played by the same guy, injects his tangential riffs here with a sense of I love me. You know what this scene needs? Not a point. It needs me. Let's make sure we get a lot of reaction shots of my co-stars laughing at my definitely improvised jokes, so America knows that everyone can't get enough of me. Me. A clear line can be drawn between this and the love guru, where literally every one of his co-stars has to be seen briefly breaking character to laugh at his antics, none of which are demonstrably funny. Doing so tells the audience, if you don't like it, it's clearly your fault because none of these professionals could deny my hilarity. Myers is clearly on creative autopilot as both a screenwriter and an actor, going so far as to trot out his now well-worn Scottish accent for a third character, the cleverly named Fat Bastard, a precursor to Shrek. Where's your shit up? I've got a turtle head poking out. Alright, get out of here! All of you, move it! In opposition to the relatively clean and simple story of the first film, The Spy Who Shagged Me is painfully convoluted. 
which wreaks havoc on the elements that made the original so charming. In the first film, you didn't mind if the riffs or set pieces ultimately didn't go anywhere because they weren't delaying any necessary plot mechanics. But The Spy Who Shagged Me is chock full of baffling time travel nonsense, inconsistencies in chronology, and absurd high concepts stacked on top of absurd high concepts, all delivered with a faux irreverent tone that, at times, comes off as condescending. If I travel back to 1969 and I was frozen in 1967, presumably I could go visit my frozen self. But if I'm still frozen in 1967, how could I have been unthawed in the 90s and traveled back to, oh no, I've gone cross-eyed? I suggest you don't worry about this sort of thing and just enjoy yourself. That goes for you all, too. Yes. It's the approach that the Deadpool franchise later co-opted for a free pass to lazy screenwriting. This acknowledgement of, we who made this movie didn't think too hard about how it actually works, but you have to give us credit for being smart because we confessed as much and we made pop culture references. Hee-hee! <laughs> Some of which are, you know, admittedly funny. You're the Diet Coke of evil. Just one calorie, not evil enough. It's not all bad. The decision to give Dr. Evil a miniature clone sidekick, Mini-Me, was an inspired one. Itself a parody of another New Line movie and disaster, the Marlon Brando version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Of course, it eventually devolves into easy jokes about dwarf endangerment, but hey, people apparently eat that shit up. It worked for Billy Barty and Foul Play, it can work here. In fact, it did work here. By taking in $54.9 million in its opening weekend, The Spy Who Shagged Me became the first sequel to outgross the entire domestic haul of its predecessor in three days. And if you thought the catchphrases hit peak saturation last time, hoo boy, you ain't seen nothing yet! Now even The Simpsons was busting them out. And although their point was that the novelty had run its course, if The Simpsons is telling you that you should cut your victory lap short, you know you're in trouble. I'll behave! <laughs> Post-Spy Who Shagged Me, Mike Myers found himself in an interesting place. The box office receipts of that film vaulted him into the exclusive club for lead actors who were considered worthy of the $20 million paycheck, and his own personal eccentricities got him sued by two of his next employers. The latter stems from Universal and Imagine Entertainment contracting Myers to bring his Dieter character from Saturday Night Live to the big screen. Would you like to touch my monkey? I will touch him. Touch him, love him! After almost $4 million had been spent on writing and pre-production, Myers abruptly bailed from the project, citing his dissatisfaction with the script. The twist was, he wrote the script. This began the ball rolling on the open secret that if you get Mike Myers to make a movie for you, you could get rich, but you had to be aware that he's kind of a nightmare. To avoid going to court, Myers agreed to make another movie for Universal and Imagine, and that turned out to be the nightmare that is the cat in the hat. Who is this? <laughs> oh. That's my mom. Awkward. Meanwhile, New Line Cinema was actively pursuing Myers for another Austin Powers sequel, and by 2002, he and director Jay Roach were ready for round three, continuing the Bond film title parody shtick by naming their next adventure Goldmember. And that, as they say, is when the lawsuits started. <laughs> MGM decided that this was not parody, but copyright infringement, and sued New Line Cinema. For the first few months of 2002, 
New Line had to remove the title from all promotional material and trailers. This not only robbed them of valuable market exposure, it raised the pricey possibility of coming up with an alternative name and redesigning their entire campaign. Eventually, cooler heads prevailed, and MGM dropped their suit under the proviso that a trailer for their next James Bond movie, Die Another Day, be attached to screenings of Goldmember and the highly anticipated second Lord of the Rings movie. Phew! Now that we dodged that bullet, July 2002 brought Austin Powers in... Yep. Gold member. This summer, I am a sexy beast. Secrets will be revealed. <laughs> One of our best agents has been kidnapped. It's your father. An evil pact. Who has my father? The aptly named Gold Member. A dangerous mission. Where can I find this Gold Member? 1975. He, he is, ladies and gentlemen. It's Gold Member. I am from Holland. Oh. <sighs> Isn't that beard? Yeah. <laughs> a foxy partner. A foxy Cleopatra. And I'm a whole lot of women. <laughs> a family secret. Dad! Hello, sir. Your spy car's a mini. It's not the size, mate. It's how you use it. Mike Myers. I haven't laughed that hard since I was a little girl. Thank you. Introducing Beyonce Knowles. Huh? And Michael Caine. What do you... How about you, Oh. Uh... Honestly, Charles. look, I don't. Can we just comb your lips? Austin Powers in Gold Member <laughs> opens July 26th. If I made my dissatisfaction with the spy who shagged me too noticeable, strap in because I really do not like Gold Member. But to be fair, even if I loved it, I couldn't love it as much as it loves itself. I knew things were gonna be rough when the opening of the film is a movie within a movie where famous people play characters from the franchise with all the subtlety and nuance of an SNL cold open. You know, where celebrities do walk-on cameos as people in the news, they introduce themselves as the person they're playing and don't really do a joke other than, yes, I am here and I am playing that person in the news. Rapturous applause break. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. Tom Cruise is Austin Powers and the joke is... Tom Cruise isn't Austin Powers. Austin Powers is Austin Powers. Danny DeVito is Mini-Me, and the joke is... Danny DeVito is short. All right. Kevin Spacey is Dr. Evil, and, uh... Actually, that one seemed to actually have come true. Hey, Steven Spielberg's here. All right, all right. As Britney Spears, uh, yeah, for some reason, Quincy Jones. Woo, Quincy, Quincy Jones, woo. Yeah, all right. Look at all our famous friends. Aren't we funny? Yeah, woo. This has nothing to do with the actual movie, but hell, you you were going to buy a ticket no matter what. Yeah, you were. Yeah, we did it. Woo. When it comes to the actual movie, it's the same shit as last time. Nonsensical time travel, more gags repeated and rehashed from the prior two movies, increasingly sloppy performances, including yet another Mike Myers character, and easily one of the most insufferable the titular Gold Member, a Dutch supervillain from the 1970s who eats flakes of his own skin and whose dick is made of gold. Dr. Evil, you look very toyed. Yes, toyed like a tiger. Yes, yes, yes. Really? Yes, you look like a macho man. Village people. <laughs> Instead of Heather Graham, 
Austin is aided in his unimportant mission by Beyoncé in her debut film, and although she's definitely a little green, she quickly displays a terrific energy to counterbalance the unfortunate fact that these characters have very little chemistry, for which their sizable difference in age is only one factor. What ultimately saves this film from being completely intolerable is Michael Caine, no stranger to the 60s British spy genre, as Austin's estranged father Nigel, who crushes even the most obvious of lines. There are only two things I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. Something that started in The Spy Who Shagged Me and gets beat to death in Goldmember is the presence of product placement. In the run-up to the theatrical release, Myers appeared in character in commercials for everything from Pepsi to Heineken, and in the actual movie, rarely is there a frame without one of these brands. And somehow, for some reason, here, that actually melds with the aforementioned trademark meta-awareness. Because Myers and his crew were not above dating their movie to a very specific time, the reality superstars of the moment, the Osbournes, practically a brand themselves, eventually show up to ridicule the movie you're watching for literally doing a routine from the last movie. Check it out! Those remind me of... Boobs! Boobs, Ozzy. These filmmakers are just boobs. What do you mean, guys? Well, they're using the same joke as they did in the last Austin Powers movie. What joke? You know, joke about the long, smooth rocket that looks like some guy's Johnson. Since Goldmember's phenomenally successful box office haul, which broke records for July opening weekend, the question of Austin Powers 4 seems to be a requirement for every entertainment journalist when interviewing Mike Myers, or director Jay Roach, or even co-star Seth Green for that matter, and every new soundbite sets the rumor mill buzzing about an imminent sequel, only for nothing to actually happen. In the years that followed Goldmember, Myers focused on starting another original comedy franchise in 2008 with The Love Guru. And, well, it, uh, it didn't click. What's the capital of Thailand? Bangkok? Exactly! Oh! Oh, my Sharif, my ball! It remains to be seen if Austin Powers will ever return to theaters, or if this whole cycle of quote-unquote rumblings is just an elaborate, unstructured tease. But if he does come back one of these days, one thing's for sure. We'll all behave. It is on that terrifyingly ominous note that we end this week's episode of The Bonus Chronicles. Thank you for keeping this little cottage industry alive through your patronage. Next Tuesday on the podcast proper, we have one of my favorite hours in the current chapter on the extracurricular activities of MST3K Architects, centering on the contributions to other television shows, with an emphasis on animation. We get to talk about everything from Edward the Less to Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and most importantly, Steven Universe, and my favorite cartoon of the 1990s, Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Of course, you already have access to next week's episode here on the Patreon feed, <laughs> but you knew that. Next Friday, the 29th, The Bonus Chronicles returns with another deleted detour, since we're doing a discussion of the animation associated with the cast and crew of MST3K, what better time to do a deep dive into the beloved series that Frank Connick worked on, Invader Zim. Where did the last piggy go? Until then, take care, and thank you for being a subscriber. <laughs>
the end.